Matthew 26. We are now uh, in our ninth sermon in our series through the the phrases of the Apostles' Creed. Um, and if my memory is correct, uh, there are just two more, I think, after this. Um, and this morning we come to that phrase, uh, the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins. We will read uh, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17. It's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. If you're able, uh, would you please stand together? Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they, they were uh, very sorrowful and began to say to him, say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work uh, in and through this, your word. Uh, use it to, uh, to strengthen our faith, to bring unbelievers to saving faith, uh, to equip us for service in your kingdom, and even to rebuke us where necessary. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, I think Allstate started it. I'm pretty sure Allstate started it. Um, it may be the case that that Flo and the Gecko have gotten in on the deal too. I can actually, I can actually confirm that Eassurance is now sort of in on the deal, but they're a subsidiary of Allstate, I think. Um, I saw a commercial just the other day from Eassurance and was like, hey, they're in the boat too. Uh, there's this trend, and it's not that new anymore, but uh, among insurance companies to uh, offer you safe driver discounts and accident forgiveness. Um, if you're good enough, if you drive well enough, if you're a safe driver and you do all the right things and you don't get speeding tickets and you don't run into other people or mailboxes or signs or, you know, your neighbor's cat, I don't know, whatever else, you know, um, then they will give you a discount. 
then the, your insurance company will give you a, a discount on your uh, premium. In other words, if you don't charge, if you don't cost them a lot of money, they will pass on a little bit of that savings back to you. Uh, that's really kind of how this works. You know, automobile insurance is a weird thing. It's the, the thing you pay for and hope you never use. You don't, really don't want it. You don't want to need it ever. So you pay for it in hopes that you never, ever see it again. Um, and so they will, um, if, if you're good enough, if you do all the right things, if you check all the boxes, uh, they'll give you a safe driver discount and accident forgiveness. Uh, I'm pretty sure that accident forgiveness is not the right terminology. Uh, they may tell you, well, look, this time, because you've been such a good driver for 10 years, this time, we won't let this accident affect your rates going forward. But you better believe they don't lose track of the fact that there was an accident. And if you have another one, and, and they're going to tell you, we'll let this one, we won't, we won't let this one change your rates, but we can't make any promises about the next one. Or the third one. Or the ninth one. Eventually, they will reach their limit. My guess is it's one. But eventually, they will reach the point where they will no longer forgive that accident. It's really one accident overlookedness. It's not really accident forgiveness. Because when you have the second one and your rates go up, they're going to say, look, you've had two accidents. You said, but you didn't charge me for the first one. Yeah. But you still had it, and we're going to hold it against you down the road if we need to. That's not forgiveness. That's one accident overlookedness. I want Allstate and Flo and the Lizard to change their language. It's one accident temporarily overlooked. That's not the kind of forgiveness you would want from God. That's not what you want from each other, quite honestly. What you want is something far more complete, far more thorough, far more permanent than what Allstate is prepared to offer you. Thankfully, as we see in this passage, our relationship to God isn't based on if you'll do things right... And, and be good enough, we'll give you a discount. And if you don't have any accidents, well, then we'll pass on some savings to you. And we can overlook one, but I can't make any promises about the next one. How would you relate to a God who said, I can forgive one? You would say, well, I mean, how do I pick one? And what am I going to do with the other billion, trillion? That you cannot and will not forgive. When we confess the Apostles' Creed together and we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, what exactly are we confessing? What are we claiming? What do we mean? Well, one of the things we mean is uh, there really are two aspects to forgiveness. And the first is a legal forgiveness. Look at verses 17 to 19. At the beginning of this passage Jesus is prepared to celebrate the Passover meal with His disciples. The Passover is the, 
the sacramental meal of the Old Covenant. Jesus is being obedient to the Old Covenant laws at this point. He's actually obeying the law for us and in our place. But the Passover celebrates, it looks back to the ten plagues when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. Uh, perhaps you know the story, you know the, remember the plagues. The tenth one, the last one, was the death of the firstborn. And the, the command given was, well, slaughter this lamb and take the blood and paint it on the doorpost and over the door. And every household that's covered by the blood of the lamb, the, the, the death angel will pass over that house. Every household covered by the blood of the lamb will be freed, will be delivered from this plague. And so Jesus is celebrating this Passover meal with His disciples, looking back to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt after 400 years of being enslaved there. And as they're celebrating this Passover, it's in that context that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And you noticed in verses 26 to 28, language that is familiar to us when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. I don't typically read from Matthew 26, but from 1 Corinthians 11. But the language is so similar that this was not foreign to you at all. And notice what Jesus does when He takes the cup. This is my blood of the covenant. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, I am going to drink the cup of judgment. I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath and curse and justice for you so that you might be forgiven. Jesus is claiming to be the true, final, perfect, ultimate Passover lamb. The spotless lamb drinking, taking on judgment in our place so that we might live. He is at that point the lamb of the Passover. Blood shed And those households covered by the blood of the Lamb would be delivered, would be freed from bondage to sin. Notice, Jesus is saying, I am the true Lamb. I am the the perfect Passover Lamb. Did the Passover Lamb actually forgive your sins? No. It only secured the freedom, the deliverance of the firstborn child, the firstborn Son in that house. It secured the deliverance of that household from Egypt. Jesus is saying, my blood does more than that. My blood frees you not from bondage to another nation, but from bondage to sin. From being enslaved to sin. He celebrates this new meal. He drinks this new cup. And it's a cup that's going to be for the deliverance of His people from slavery to sin. His blood secures our forgiveness. Why do we need that? 
Why is that the case? Why do we need Him to drink this cup in our place? Allstate is not a holy God. And God's holy and holiness and justice he can't overlook sin. Allstate can pretend that this accident didn't happen. They can say, okay, look, for now, let's just pretend that you didn't do that. The holy God of the universe can't simply pretend you didn't sin. When we violate, when we sin against His holiness and His justice, He can't just say, well, I mean, I know you meant well. You were sort of trying. You said you were going to try. I mean, I can see in your heart you weren't trying as hard as you talked about, but you tried a little. So we'll just pretend that doesn't exist. A holy and just God can't pretend that sin doesn't exist. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't simply close his eyes and look the other way. Violation of the will of God demands death. Blood has to be shed. When his holy will is violated, somebody has to die. It demands that there be bloodshed. But what Jesus says here is, it doesn't have to be your blood. Your sin demands your death. We read that in Romans 3, Romans 6. We understand that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus says, it doesn't actually have to be your death. Just as the Lamb died to secure the deliverance of the people of Israel, so too I die to secure your deliverance. In other words, Jesus sheds His blood to forgive sin. His life is being given as a ransom for us. His blood is being shed. His life is being killed. He's dying the death that you and I deserve for our breaking of God's holy law. You know, this is one of the places where uh, C.S. Lewis gets it wrong. Careful. There are certain places where you can't drag Lewis's name through the mud like that. But this is one of the places where C.S. Lewis gets it wrong. Do you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund had uh, committed cosmic treason. And, but in Lewis's theology, in Lewis's, in the book, it's, it's the white witch who demands his blood, not Aslan. That's wrong. Sin, it's not that Satan comes and demands our blood because of our sin. It's God's holiness that demands our death. It's God's justice that demands bloodshed. It should have been Aslan demanding Edmund's death. Which is why when Christ then says, however, the greatest word in all of Scripture, but. 
Yes, it demands bloodshed. Yes, your sin demands, your cosmic treason demands that blood be shed, but I'll shed mine in your place. I'll take the penalty that you deserve. I'll face the wrath of the Holy Father so that you don't have to. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's the the picture there. We're commanded to, to celebrate it, obviously, until He comes, until He returns. But it's the sacramental meal that signifies our forgiveness for sin because of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus accomplishes our forgiveness not because God overlooks sin, but because He won't. Don't miss that. Jesus accomplishes our salvation not because God overlooks sin, but precisely because He will not and cannot. Jesus dies in your place. The law demanded death and Jesus satisfied that demand in our place. Your insurance company might offer accident forgiveness. uh, One accident temporary overlookedness. That's their new... It doesn't go well really on a commercial, I don't think. One accident temporary overlookedness is not really going to sell Allstate. But that's really what they're offering. They're choosing to ignore this one accident, but good luck on the next one. The accident stays on your record. And if we need to, we'll pull it back up and throw it in your face. Is that what God does for us? Not at all. When forgiven in Christ, when His blood has been shed for us and we find forgiveness for all sin, past, present, and future, we're no longer held accountable to that sin. It's not still on our record. It's not on some file somewhere that if you just find the right file drawer and you know, flip back to your name, or I guess these days it's on the cloud somewhere. And if you just dig around long enough, the hacker can find, oh look, here's the list of all the stuff you've done wrong. Psalm 103 tells us that our transgression is removed as far as east is from west. You know how far that is? How far is east from west? Well, guess what? At any point you ever are, there's always more east and there's always more west. You can't exhaust east and west. Or uh, in, um, so in Isaiah 38, I think it is, um, he tells us that he throws his sins, our sins behind his back. He's, he's, he's throwing them away. He's removing them from us. He's... He's expunging the record. You can't call up some 12-year-old hacker somewhere and say, look, dig around on the cloud, on God's iCloud, and find my list of transgressions. They're not there. Jesus dies to secure 
to accomplish our salvation. Your record is wiped clean. Your record appears as though you've never actually sinned. Did you notice um, it's not so clear. The Shorter Catechism, um, you should learn the Shorter Catechism, by the way. Uh, just here's, here's the shameless plug for learning the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Because then you can do, what is God? You've got an answer. What is justification? Justification, the big fancy Bible word for, for being declared right and, and in my new right standing with God. If you, wanna, if you want something to hold you over until you learn the Shorter Catechism answer, you'll frequently hear people say justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. That's not complete. It's not just the absence of sin, it's actually the presence of Christ's righteousness. Just as if I'd never sinned and had actually lived a perfect life. That's our standing by God's grace because of Christ's life, death in our place. Forgiveness is a legal declaration. Jesus in His life and His death um, deal have, have dealt with uh, the, our legal standing before God, the legal consequences of our sin. There is, when you commit cosmic treason, uh, you're, you're, the law demands death. And Jesus takes that death in our place. But forgiveness isn't just a legal matter. It's also a relational one. It's not just a legal uh, declaration. It's also a relational declaration as well. Because notice in verse 28, uh, Jesus says, uh, for this is my blood of the covenant. He's replacing uh, an old sacramental meal with a new one. He's fulfilling the old covenant and replacing it with this new covenant meal, this Lord's Supper. You know what a covenant is? It's a relationship. It's the standard by which a relationship will be governed. It's the, 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 the way in which uh, one, two parties relate to each other. The, the practice, you, you see it clearly in Genesis 15. In, in the ancient Near East, the practice was when two people would make a legal contract, a legal agreement, they would cut animals in half and separate the halves. And with all the guts and the blood and the... the you know, you've got to sort of be careful. You don't want to step on the liver and the stomach, the heart. No, no telling what's sort of pouring out of these two halves of the body. And they would walk between them and what they're saying together. And what they're saying is, if I fail to do what I've promised to do, then let what happened to this animal happen to me. It's the, the guiding principles of this new relationship. That's why, by the way, in Genesis 15, it's so significant that Abraham never passed through those animals. God alone staked his very existence on the accomplishment of all that he had promised to Abraham. So Jesus is recognizing this is a, a covenantal relationship. These are the, the, the rules by which, the standards by which this covenant relation, this relationship will be governed and 
ruled, the way this relationship would function. You know why that matters? Because sin separates. You talk about somebody behind their back and you think you're saying it in confidence. But word gets out. You find out that your friends have kind of been together and doing things together and and talking about you. And one of them comes and, and reports on the gossip that was going on. There's a, a rumor going through school that you've done something you shouldn't have done over the weekend. You lash out in anger towards a co-worker who just finally got on your nerves a little too much. You're spanking your child and it sort of crosses the line into abuse and not really a spanking. Sin has relational consequences. In that moment, when that, that, that gossip, that thing that you said, they find out, or the things they said about you, you find out, where's the one place you want to be more than anything in the world at that moment? With those people? I don't think so. Anywhere but with those people. That's what sin does with our relationship with God. That's what it's done to God's relationship with mankind. You saw it in Genesis 3 from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, they tried to figure out how to make clothes out of leaves and how to blame each other and everybody else and anyone and anything else for their sin. Sin has relational effects. It has relationship consequences. And so what we need is not just a legal declaration of forgiveness. We need the relationship with God restored. We need to be back into that covenant fellowship with God. And that's exactly what Christ is accomplishing for us. Christ is saying, look, I'm I'm entering into, I'm making this new covenant. And it's a covenant that's going to be in my blood, not the blood of some lamb from Exodus 12. No, it's going to be in my blood. And it's going to secure your forgiveness. And this is going to be our relationship. This is going to be how our fellowship can be restored. It can only be restored through Christ. You know, you think about the number of times you go through a day or a week. You mess up. Maybe a little, maybe a lot. The conversation looks something like, oh, my bad. Yeah, no problem. It's all good. Okay, that's sort of caveman-like. But it is a conversation that is at least intended to restore the relationship. It's a terrible way to do it. I sinned against you by, forgive me for, yes, I forgive you. That's much better language. It's, it's this language, biblical language. Use that language instead. Drop the my bad, oops, my, my fault, uh, in a biggie. 
yeah, whatever. Uh, it's much more relationally engaging for that matter. I, I sinned against you. Forgive me for Yes, I forgive you. The relationship is restored. That's what Jesus accomplishes. It's the restoration of your relationship with your heavenly Father. It's ruined and marred by sin. Legally, you deserve death. He satisfies those demands in your place. And now you have the confidence, the hope, the assurance, not of running to the other room, not of getting away from Him, but actually going to Him. Jesus has come to restore this relationship. When you're trusting in Christ for your salvation and you're in this new covenant relationship, that's just what it is. You have a relationship. You're in fellowship with God. And it's a fellowship that exists only because of Christ. So when we confess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed, we're saying that we believe in our need for legal forgiveness, our need for relational or covenantal restoration, and that that forgiveness is only found in Christ. Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin and shame and guilt with leaves. What do you try to cover yours with? We all do it. Christians and non-Christians alike. We all try to cover our guilt and sin and shame with something. Here in Matthew 26, Jesus is celebrating the Passover. There should have been a lamb. There's no mention of a lamb. Did you notice? There's no mention of... of there's never... In, in, in any of the Gospels, there's in 1 Corinthians 11, there's no mention of a lamb at this meal. I think part of the implication there is to draw us to realize that Christ is that lamb. As long as you and your household are covered by the blood of the lamb, you would live. That was true for the Passover. That's true here as well. Jesus is the final, perfect, permanent sacrifice for sin. Is He yours? If not, would you, would you want Him to be? Even if He is, Christians, we don't escape this need either. Think of the ways we use our abilities or our grades or our personalities or our work ethic, or something to, to cover our sin and to shame, and our shame and our guilt. To make people think better of us than we really are. We, we find ways to sew leaves together to hide our guilt, to hide our sinfulness. We even say things like, God's getting me back for not having, me, having my quiet time today and I'm going to do better and I'm going to prove to him that I'm on his side so that he will be on mine. We say we say things like that. Here's what this passage says. There's absolutely nothing you can cover your sin and guilt and shame with. 
except the blood of Christ. There's nothing you can do to make yourself better, to gain God's favor. Look, this has, this has implications for our doubt, for our assurance of salvation. This has implications for the security of our salvation. If Christ has died to forgive your sins, if Christ has died to restore your relationship with the Father, who's going to snatch you out of His hands? Who's going to bring that relationship to an end? What in the world could possibly mean that you're not forgiven for this some random secret sin somewhere along the way? If Jesus died to save you, can you actually get away from Him? If Jesus died to save you, will that actually not come to full fruition? If He died to save you, do we really think He would turn His back on us? This has implication for our, our prayers as well. The eternal Son of God died to win you and to restore that broken relationship. That's why we can go with confidence and boldness into the very throne room of heaven. The picture in Ruth of Esther, and Esther, of the king holding out his scepter uh, to Queen Esther. Christ is that scepter. He's already been held out to you. You're welcomed into the King's presence. You're invited. Go there boldly. Go there confidently. Allstate can promise to overlook one accident and not charge you for it. But there's nothing they can do about the next one. There's nothing they can do about the second one. Aren't you thankful for a God who says all your sins, past, present, and future have been nailed to the cross and you bear them no more? I forgive one and I forgive all. Why? Because of the blood and righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this hope and assurance and, and promise of forgiveness in and through the, the life and death of Christ in our place. We pray that You would use this reality, this truth, to draw us more boldly, more confidently into a relationship, into fellowship with You in Your Word and, and through prayer. Into fellowship with each other. And to recognize that blood has been shed. Our sin has been forgiven. And it's removed from us as far as east is from west. And thrown behind your back, never to be held over our heads again. Father, would you strengthen our faith? Would you equip, equip us to take that gospel message of hope out into a world that needs it so desperately? We pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.